0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief
1: Washington Correspondent. Major Major Garrett.
0: Yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
1: Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
2: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. This week, all about serving you in our listening and viewing public. Why? Because you want to move. You're coming out of the pandemic, you want to travel. And I've got the best, the single best voice in America to help you understand what's going on in the travel world, where to find bargains, what things to look out for, what things to be excited about. His name is Peter Greenberg. I've had him on the show before. Peter's been an asset to this program, to my other documentary podcast, The Debrief. He works for CBS. He's been in the travel journalism business for, what, more than 30 years, right, Peter?
1: I'm afraid so. (laughs)
2: <laughs> exactly. So, Peter, I just want an open-ended question. What's going on that curi- that is makes you most curious slash excited about travel right now?
1: Well, as all the countries are opening, we're seeing a morph uh, in the metrics between the percentage of vaccination in the destinations versus the percentage of vaccinations of the people who want to go there. And that's why we saw the European Union open up their 27 countries. That's why we're seeing other countries, you know, Slowly but surely doing the same thing. The thing that gets me going is if we were going back, let's say, to January or February of 2020, the one word that was on the table, it was the buzzword. It was over tourism, And that was, you know, topic A. Well, you would think that the pandemic would have given the travel industry an opportunity for a reset, a a, a do-over, if you will, an opportunity to manage the growth that they knew was going to come back. And the real challenge right now is I don't think they're doing it. Um, and we're seeing Venice getting overcrowded again. Uh, We're seeing Hawaii getting inundated. In fact, the mayor of Maui just begged airlines to reduce the number of flights to that island. Think about that. These are tourism-dependent destinations that are begging people now not to come. Um, That's how we're seeing the pent-up demand being expressed. However, we're also seeing how it's not being well managed.
2: Is this a labor shortage problem or a planning problem?
1: It's a perfect storm of a planning problem, a labor shortage, and the pent-up demand. Um, and you put all those three things together, watch out. Uh, I was in a hotel, and in, in, uh, uh, I'll, I'll name the hotel. It was a Hilton Hotel in Alabama a month ago. There was zero housekeeping staff. I was in a hotel two days later. It was a Marriott. Uh, they had one waitress working two and a half shifts in the restaurant. If you wanted to wait three and a half hours for a cheeseburger, be my guest. But the point is, this is going on system-wide, nationwide, at least in this country, whether it's you know, staffing airline pilots, counters, gates, security checkpoints, uh, and it's the same thing happening in the rest of the, uh, of the travel and hospitality business.
2: Right. And for many people, Peter, as you know, the economics of tourism and travel, these are oftentimes the, the jobs you just described, whether it's a waitress or cleaning staff, their entry level, their lower wage. And there is a whole conversation going on about maybe it's just for a moment, but it is a moment of labor clout that these entry level or service employees have to say, you know what, if you want us back, you're going to have to pay us more and perhaps increase our be- our benefits. That's, it appears to be that's happening.
1: Oh, it is happening. And I'll give you an example of that, which is bizarre. In Hawaii, in Maui, they were advertising – were people that come and bust tables at a restaurant, and were, the introductory offer was $45 an hour, and nobody responded to the ad.
2: $45 an hour.
1: And no one responded to the <laughs> ad. So if you want to know where I'm going to be next week, I'll be doing <laughs> tables nine fifteen. And... No, but seriously, I mean, <laughs> think about that.
2: So that, so, at, at, so that's a price point that the tourism industry is not familiar with. Correct. And this changes their economics, and it probably makes it harder to plan. We're complaining about, well, lack of planning, lack of vision. I don't think anyone in the tourism industry, if they were trying to estimate wage costs a year out, would have said, well, yeah, $45 to $50 an hour for a busboy.
1: Exactly. So it changes the whole calculus, and then you couple that with the demand. Last Thursday, I was trying to go from Los Angeles to New York. Uh, Granted, it was at the last minute. You know what my coach ticket was one way? Take a wild guess. Coach.
2: 370.
1: All right. You will not be going to the showcase showdown. It was $1,100. Okay. Okay. Wow.
2: Now, I could be uh, completely inept at this and probably am, but I would never, even if you've given me two or three chances – Gotten up to $1,100 for a coach right. ticket.
1: And, 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 and I had to go, so I, I, I paid it. But the point is, this is where we are right now and where we will probably still be until about the end of September when kids finally return to school and things begin to stabilize. But for this, for this summer period, watch out.
2: And Peter, it seems to me that, at least here in the District of Columbia, Maryland and Virginia, when I talk to friends, historically, August was kind of the time to get away. No one is waiting for August. As soon as things got opened in May, people got going. And they said, you know what? We're going to take our last year's vacation that we didn't take in May, and we're going to take another one in August. I mean, it just feels like people are doubling up on this to make up for lost time.
1: They are. In fact, the interesting thing is it's not a bucket list decision. They're going anywhere they can. Um, And so we're dealing not just with primary cities, but we're dealing with secondary and tertiary cities that may not have ever been on their wish list that they're going to uh, and that's a good thing as we re- rediscover our country. Let's, let's be honest about that. But at the same time, you've got to put it in perspective and give it some context. I mean, if you're taking a look at price point, the interesting irony here is that we're no longer price sensitive. People are just going to pay whatever they can. There are hotel rooms in California that a year ago were going normally, normally for $250 a night that are going for $1,200 a night now, and no one's blinking. No one is blinking. <sighs> Uh, because they, they've had all this money sidelined for the last 15 months, and it's burning a hole in their pocket, and they want to travel, and they just want to go. Now, they have a different demand ca- uh, here, and they have a different expectation, but the point is, in terms of their willingness to go and willingness to pay, watch out, they're doing
2: it. So this is probably going to be a conversation that will move into the second segment but uh, i want to give you a chance to start on it it seems like a big part of this travel experience right now peter in addition to planes is cars we are driving 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 and to your point about price point if the gas is more expensive so be it we're going to put it in our tank and we're going to go go go
1: go you're absolutely right the gas prices right now are the highest they've been since 2014 and nobody's blinking at that either but the real issue here is when you try to combine an airplane flight and a rental car where you get to the destination. Good luck with that. Uh, You know, the rental car companies were faced with hundreds of thousands of cars uh, parked in lots during the pandemic. These were non-performing assets going nowhere except depreciating in value. And that's when their CFOs kicked in and said, you know what, let's just shrink the fleet, sell everything. And they basically shrunk the fleet by about 80%. And now we're back. And there are no cars. Uh, Rental car rates, I have seen, well, I had one myself in Florida, a one-day rental of a Kia. We all know it's a lovely car. Lovely car. Lovely car. Uh,
2: But on the lower end of the luxury spectrum, let us be candid.
1: We are. And that was $441 a day. Now, let's do the math. I could lease a Kia for four months for what they were charging me for one day. So isn't it interesting to see what's happening? There's a cottage industry now in America where people are going out and doing just that. They're leasing the cars and then renting them themselves, meaning it's all black market. Um, And of course, the liability issues here and the insurance issues here are pretty substantial and pretty scary, but it's not stopping them from doing it. And uh, you're seeing this in in the major resort destinations of Florida, Hawaii, California. You get it.
2: And- about 40 seconds before we go to our first break, one of the reasons people are driving is to avoid uh, restrictions and hassles, true?
1: They are, but they also want to be self-contained, and they want to have their options. And a lot of times, you know, the definition of travel these days is all the options you no longer have. By that you mean? By that I mean, it's, you know, luxury travel is about options. So right, okay. the airline experience is about all the things you're no longer allowed to do, right? right? And, and, and we sit there and go, well, okay. And so if we have a chance to drive of under 400 miles on a trip, we're going to take that.
2: Right. You're not going to wear a mask and your cup holder has always got the beverage of your choice. Uh, Peter Greenberg, we're going to talk about travel. This is a public service edition of The Takeout because we're going to learn as much as we can about the travel experiences we are having now and the ones we're going to have in the not too distant future. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two in just one second.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Delighted to have Peter Greenberg with us talking all about travel. Peter, you, like me, you have a podcast. What's it called? Where can people find it?
1: It's called Ion on Travel, wherever you get your podcast. We do it every week from a different location somewhere in the world. And uh, that's what we do.
2: You mentioned in the first segment, Peter, that we're rediscovering our country. I have read that part of that is national parks.
1: Correct. Uh, however, and here's the however part. We're not alone in that. And so you're seeing major national parks like Canyonlands and Arches and, of course, Yosemite and Yellowstone, the usual suspects, being either overcrowded, oversold, or threatening to close because they can't handle the numbers. So keep in mind, there are over 400 national parks and monuments in the United States. So you don't have to always go to the usual suspects, number one. But number two, what do you see within 25 miles of a national park? You see a state park. And the state parks have great camping facilities. They're, they're, they're less crowded, and they be, they provide, at least for the moment, a great alternative.
2: And when I was a child, we used to choose state parks over national parks because my father believed that state parks were less bureaucratized, less corporatized, if you will, meaning less formal facilities. They were always less crowded and, from his perspective, more enjoyable. That's kind of the advertisement then. Does that still apply now?
1: It does. Uh, I think state parks do a great job, and you'd be surprised how many state parks there are in certain states? I mean, even states that don't, they don't have, maybe only have one national park, they may have fifty-five state parks. So there are great choices there.
2: So a trend that we heard about during the pandemic was the rental or acquisition of RVs, so people could move about in their own. Is that trend continuing, or has that come
1: and gone? No, no, it's continuing. It, it, actually, it started before the pandemic. Even the median age of RV drivers had gone down. But the pandemic really rocketed it because what is an RV if not a self-contained quarantine mobile uh, where you don't have to stop except for food and gas, and you're not even staying at a hotel and you're not st- you're not eating out at a restaurant? Uh, the only question is, where do you plug it in? And that becomes the problem with national parks and state parks in terms of finding available parking facilities. But the uh, no, state park sales are up. State park rentals, I mean, excuse me, RV sales are up, but RV rentals are way up.
2: And when you travel in an RV, you always know who your busboy is.
1: Yes, but if you travel in an RV, please take it from me. Go through the driving test before you take it off a lot, because those right turns can be a bitch. I mean, I mean, you're going to take out something if you're not careful.
2: No doubt, no doubt. Peter, what is in the travel industry right now the conversation about safety as it relates to the Delta variant? Because I read a lot of information about our justifiable interest slash obsession in the United States with our vaccination rate. But the global vaccination rate is way, 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 way behind that. And there's a good body of literature that's saying that lack of vaccination penetration in the rest of the world will not only influence tourism, but it will influence the world's ability to get on the other side of this pandemic. What's the travel conversation about all that?
1: Well, it's a very similar conversation, except for one thing. And that is It's the vaccination rate of the people going versus the vaccination rate of the people where you're going to. And I'll give you an example. Last week, I was in Tanzania. Uh, I've been vaccinated. I wore a mask. Uh, But the vaccination rate in Tanzania, as is the rest of Africa, is under 6%. That's ridiculous. Um, And yet it didn't stop me from going because I've been vaccinated. And the, the scientific issues that I've been learning about, uh, or that you have a much better chance, obviously, even with the, with the new variants, if you've been vaccinated. It's the ones who have not been vaccinated who are the most susceptible, especially to this new variant. Uh, and what you're seeing, I mean, look, the vaccination rates in Africa are not gonna get better very much very soon. It's, it's really sad. Um, and at the same time, these are tourism dependent countries. These are countries that if you don't have tourism, they can't put food on the table. It even trickles down in certain parts of Africa that if you don't have tourism, the animals are endangered because you don't have enough money to pay the rangers to stop the poachers, um, and so it's, it's it's a cycle that's been interrupted here, and it's a little scary.
2: So I've been on three flights in the last two months, uh, twice to San Diego, once to Bermuda. All the flights were completely packed. Yep. Happily, on not one of those flights did anyone complain audibly. They might have silently about having to wear a mask. But you know this air rage thing is real. It is a concern for flight attendants. It is a concern for the airlines. And there is some confusion that passengers have, wait a minute, why here on the plane do I have to keep the mask up? And if I'm eating my peanuts, there's someone that's going to walk by me and say, get that mask up between bites of peanuts. When everywhere else I go, or mostly everywhere else I go, I don't have to. I'm not asking you to explain everything but it's got to be a concern and a daily topic of conversation for the airlines.
1: It is a daily cop- topic of conversation for any mode of public transportation these days. Uh, if you take a look at the numbers here, first of all, the federal mask mandate right now is, is set to be decided upon, if they're going to extend it or not, uh, as of September 13th. But that applies to airlines, trains, subways, any mode of public transportation where you have federal jurisdiction. Uh, the issue here is, once again, a perfect storm, between fear, the politicization of, of masks, and um, let's call it what it is, alcohol. Uh, you know, what could, what could happen at 35,000 feet where you have altitude and alcohol uh, and somebody who doesn't want to do something? Gee, what could go wrong? Uh, well, of the, th- the 3,200 plus cases that the FAA has reported already of unruly passengers, uh, an overwhelming number of those have been because of refusal to wear a mask, and an overwhelming number of those, it's alcohol related. So here's what's happening. You know, you have some airlines like American that has refused to bring back alcohol service until the fall. Same thing with with the Southwest Airlines. I, I liken this to an NFL game where they stop serving liquor in the fourth quarter. So I'm thinking that we may have short of breathalyzers at jetways, even when this when this mass issue passes, but short of breathalyzers at jetways, I'm thinking that you're gonna get a timestamp. On your boarding pass, and that uh, any airport retail operation that sells alcohol will not allow, would not be allowed to serve you uh, within 45 minutes of that timestamp, no matter what you say. I think we're going to get to that point because right now, no flight attendant wants to be a police person, no no pilot wants to have to divert the plane, and yet there are a lot of people walking on planes already tanked, and then you add the ma- then you add the mask issue to it, and everything breaks loose. So. I think this issue is far from over.
2: Wow. I want to go back to that, Peter, what you just said, because this tells me that the conversation has reached a level of seriousness within the airline industry that it believes it has to do something proactive because the situation, if left unaddressed, will get out of control. And there'll be genuine safety issues and genuine jeopardy if they don't do something.
1: Well, there already are. Uh, You've seen the viral video of that Southwest Airlines flight attendant being punched out, losing her teeth. Uh, uh, that's just one issue. And, you know, we can't spend the time on our flights wrestling people to the ground and using plastic tie strings to lash them to their chairs.
2: Or having an airplane captain go on the overhead and say strong men come to the front of the plane.
1: Exactly. And then there's, a, there's, a, there's an economic cost here. Anytime you divert a plane, and chances are you may be diverting it to an airport where they're not even based or don't, or don't even have facilities, the costs spiral. Not to mention, it disrupts the entire onward leg of every passenger on that plane, the plane itself, the flight attendants, the crew goes out of schedule in sequence, the plane goes out of sync. It's a mess. And so you now have uh, fines that have been imposed up to $52,000 an in incident per passenger. And then that doesn't even deal with the criminal penalties. So it's getting serious.
2: Is this going to be a government thing, the FAA requirement, or do you think the airlines will say, look, it's our ticket, it's our plane, it's our rules?
1: Well, it's both. They started it that way. But the airlines saying, "Okay, if you don't wear the mask, we're going to ban you from our planes. Right. That didn't work. They just went to other airlines. Right. And the same thing happened. So then the feds came in uh, with the FAA right before uh, the inauguration, by the way, back in Mm -hmm. January. And that's when they instituted the fine system. And it started at 35,000. It's now up to 52,000. Uh, and that hasn't really worked. So now they're going to, now the airlines and the flight attendants unions are asking for, for the Department of Justice to ask for criminal penalties uh, in, in terms of this now. So that's our next level. So we're going to see.
2: Criminal penalties, time stamping. And if you haven't been on a flight, you'll hear this when you get on a flight. You can't bring your own alcohol on board the flight. Peter, I never thought I'd live to the day where there would be a formal announcement reminding passengers you cannot bring your own alcohol in secret compartments onto the plane. More on this conversation on travel, alcohol, and other related issues with Peter Greenberg. I'm Major Garrett. The Takeout continues in one second.
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Because I'm fascinated with what we were just talking about, we're going to continue for just a couple of seconds on it. Peter Greenberg, our special guest, travel expert. What's the name of your podcast one more time, Peter?
1: It's uh, Eye on Travel on CBS. Yeah.
2: Here we go. So, are people, because I guess I, I mentioned this before the break, this formal announcement you hear on air, airlines, you can't bring your own alcohol. Are people smuggling alcohol on planes?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know the three one one rule about liquids. So what they're doing is somewhere. What's about, the
2: three one one rule?
1: Oh, it's three ounces. You know, it's been around for years about what you're not allowed to bring on a plane anyway in your carry on bags. Got it. Uh, in terms of ounces of liquid, right? Right. Well, in this situation, somewhere in airports, there's got to be some retail operation selling those miniature bottles of uh, of alcohol, or people are bringing them through their carry on bag and they qualify under the three one one rule. And then they're on the plane and chug a lug.
2: Right. They get their Diet Coke or whatever, and out pops the little bottle, and there they are.
1: Yep. And, and by the way, that violates a airline rule. The, the, the airline rule was put in, of course, because the airlines wanted to retain the revenue from onboard liquor sales. What a surprise. Uh, but now it's a safety issue. And right. may I remind everybody that if you're sitting in your seat and the flight attendant asks you to put, put your seatbelt on, and you refuse, you are already in violation of a federal law because you're disobeying the order of a flight crew member. If the same thing applies if they tell you you can't drink the alcohol. At that point, regardless of all the, all the mask problems, uh, when you're met at the airport when you land, there will be federal marshals there to escort you off the plane. This is not this is not an easy thing.
2: And is it your feeling? Do you have an anxiety, Peter? That. This could really be a problem beyond what it already has been, and we could have a a dangerously destabilized commercial flight that runs real risks to the safety of passengers and people on the ground if this isn't dealt with more aggressively?
1: Well, we've already had issues with people who are either not on their meds or who have been over-medicated, rushing cockpit doors, trying to open cabin doors, activating slides, Um, and thank God this has mostly happened on the ground. Uh, But the problem is, it's going to continue. Look, we have full airplanes. Uh, We have, uh, you know, it's not just saying it's a pressurized cabin. There are people who are under their own pressure. And this this bring
2: their own pressure onto the flight.
1: Exactly. And we look, we don't have therapists at jetways. and We don't have breathalyzers at jetways. What we do have, thank God, and this goes back to 9-11. We now have passengers who will take command and act to protect their other passengers in situations like this.
2: So I always ask you about this, uh, Peter, because it's not the most common mode of travel, but it is a very much used mode of travel, buses and trains. What has been their experience? Um, Is there anything that is interesting going on either in the adaptation, availability or price point of either?
1: Well, the price point's been okay on trains. Amtrak's had a number of sales this year uh, and they've they've done a good job. Remember, they did social separation, social distancing from day one. So no one would ever be sitting next to you on a train unless it was a family member or a significant other. Uh, and they've had a number of, of uh, uh, look, they've, they pulled back on their routes at the beginning of the pandemic. They're now starting to bring them back. But Amtrak has still got a challenge. And the challenge that Amtrak has, with the exception of the Northeast Corridor, they don't make money on any route, period. I mean, it's terrible. Uh, I'm a big train fan. I've always been a train fan. I love the long haul trains. But how many Americans actually take the Sunset Limited from New York to L.A.? Not many. How many take the Empire Builder or the Southern Crescent through their entire route? And when you take a look at the route the trains go, if the train is stopping in Kalispell Kalispell at three o'clock in the morning to pick up three passengers on its onward route east, that costs Amtrak 10 times more money than they're ever going to make from those passengers. Now, Amtrak's uh, basically in a position now to receive a huge amount of the infrastructure money on the new bill that's being talked about. Uh, But the question is, where are they going to spend it? Are they going to spend it on those long-haul trains, which, by the way, they probably will? And the reason is, this is going to come as no surprise to you in Washington, Major, Right. who owns Amtrak? 435 members of Congress. They all have a district they got to keep happy. and They want those trains to keep coming in, even if they're losing money. Um, And I hope they can figure out a way uh, to figure this out, because right now they're going to continue to lose money.
2: Anyone who has traveled to Europe or to Japan in particular, even China, knows something about high-speed rail. Why don't we have it? Are we ever going to get it? Is it ever going to be an idea worth using here?
1: Here's why we're not going to have high-speed rail as we know it in Europe and, and, and Asia, and that is Amtrak doesn't own the tracks. Nope. It's owned by the freight lines, and they have no interest whatsoever in high-speed rail, and the tracks are in such poor condition that in the Northeast corridor, you know, the Acela the gets up to about 120 miles an hour from maybe 29 miles. If it got 120 miles an hour on the 30th mile, it would derail because the tracks are so bad. So we've got to fix the tracks. Uh, getting, the, getting the new trains on board is not, not difficult. Amtrak's had them in order for a long time, but the question is they can't operate them the way they're supposed to operate. That's the first problem. The second problem is you may have noticed they're trying to work on a high-speed rail in the corridor In in California, North South. Well, here's the problem there. Every mayor says, I'm in favor of high speed rail as long as it stops in my city. It's just become a local. So,
2: So it kind of defeats the purpose.
1: Right, sort of. So the only way to make that work is to have high speed rail twice a day and everything else be a local. How do you do that on the same track? I failed math in high school, so I'm not even gonna attempt this, but I mean, that's your problem. Everybody wants, everybody's in favor of it as long as it stops in their town.
2: Do Americans ride buses anymore?
1: We do. Uh, you know, th- we ride buses a lot. Um, you know, especially in, in the southeast and um, in, in that corridor. Absolutely, I- I've done it. You know, the Greyhound has now got new buses. You know, my, my you know my idea of a bus was that George Raft was driving, <laughs> and there was a drifter next to me drooling. Um, <laughs> And i got to tell you, I've taken the buses lately, and you know what? It's leather seats. They've got, they've got refreshments on board. They have Wi-Fi, which, of course, for guys like you and me, makes a big difference. Um, and, uh, and, the, and they're safer. You've got you to wear your seatbelts now.
2: My college-age children love to take the bus. There are several different lines that run from Washington to New York. And they find that a better experience, more enjoyable experience than the train.
1: Well, you know what? You can. And by the way, if you're a time and efficiency expert and you did the bus and the train versus the American and Delta shuttle to Washington, D.C., the shuttle might beat you by about 20 minutes if you actually factor in the time it takes you to get to the airport, go through security, wait, not even counting for any delays. The, and, and the funny thing is about the shuttle is that the actual airtime that you're in the air is 38 minutes. Right. But it's actually scheduled for an hour and a half. And it hardly ever makes that either. So that's it's the, one of the busiest, if not the busiest, air quarter in the United States. So if I have a choice between taking the train, the bus, or the plane in that quarter, you'll count me on. You'll see me on the ground one way or the other.
2: So speaking of planes, um, where are the airlines in capacity? That is to say, getting the routes back to where they were recognizably comparable pre-pandemic.
1: Uh, Well, I have to answer this by saying the airlines are a little nuts right now. And what they've done is uh, they've tried to figure out where Americans want to go immediately following the pandemic. And the initial response was they want to go anywhere where they can breathe. Okay, right. The great outdoors. So the airlines have announced more than 170 new routes. Right. Not to Chicago, New York or L.A., but to, uh, you know, Traverse City, Michigan and and Bend, Oregon. And, uh, and of course, my favorite, Bozeman, Montana. And the reason why I use Bozeman as an example is every airline that I know of has announced routes to Bozeman. In fact, this month alone, there will be 200,000 seats flying into Bozeman, right? That's 200,000 seats that you can have to fly into Bozeman. There even aren't even 200 hotel rooms in Bozeman, but they're all doing it because it's next to a national park. So, it's, you know, the airport in Bozeman about a month ago was one guy on the runway named Vern. Now it's 200,000 people showing up with nowhere to go and nowhere to afford. So,
2: and it, no rental car to rent.
1: It, oh, no, you, you can rent my Kia because I just leased it. I'm going to sell it to you. But, right. <laughs> but, but the thing is, we have to wait till September. September is going to be the reckoning. Because all those cities that got roots this summer are going to discover they're not there in the fall. These airlines are just going to pull them out and fly them somewhere else. And that's when things are going to stabilize. But this summer is just nuts.
2: This summer, just nuts. You heard it from Peter Greenberg back for segment four, of The Takeout, in just one second.
1: It's three o'clock somewhere. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: Travel expert Peter Greenberg is our guest, and this is a public service edition of The Takeout. We're trying to get as many of the topics relevant to travel now and in the not-too-distant future dealt with. But I want to take a moment, Peter, to ask a pitiful question. Just a pitiful, pitiful question,
1: okay? Let me let me guess. Where's your upgrade? No, okay. No, no. It's no. even
2: more pitiful than that. Okay. Will there ever be a travel agent ever again?
1: Oh, my God, of course. In fact, travel agents are doing better. Do, do, you know, I'm. You know, I'm. Well, you know what I'm driving. I miss them. Oh no, they're I, back. I,
2: when, when I was a young man, when I was a young man who had, hard, I had no money. But what little money I could scrape together, I would go to a travel agent and they would put everything together. Yeah. And then I would go over there and everything would be in a bundle. And I would take that bundle with me and I would travel. And I didn't have to spend the time I spend now being my own travel agent. Now that's a pitiful question. It's a first world problem. I confess to all of those sins, but I miss it. <laughs>
1: Well, I have good news for you. They're back bigger than ever. Really? Oh, yeah. Where do I find them? Oh, my God. It's so easy to find them. Here's the deal. During the pandemic, we found out how badly we needed travel agents because they were the only ones there advocating for passengers. They were the only ones out there, you know, lobbying to get people their refunds back. Right. And the, and the travel agents were doing so at a negative income because when they got the refunds, they lost their commissions as well. But they were advocating for their customers. And we've now evolved into a series of great travel consortiums of travel agents or travel advisors. Uh, there's Virtuoso, there's Signature. Uh, these are two of the, of the many that there are. They're on the web. But what the, what the interesting thing about those two consortia is that they have specialists. So it's no longer the, the original mom and pop travel agency that you grew up with where right. they take care of your crews and send junior to college and take you on a business trip today. They have specialists on barge travel, on bicycle travel, on, you know, uh, genealogy travel. I mean, you name it. And they have preferred supplier relationships. They know exactly who to call. Uh, You know, we've been steered the wrong way on the web into thinking that the web is the answer to everything. The web is not your friend. If you want to buy a, a, a $59 ticket on Southwest Airlines between New York and Chicago, be my guest if you want to make it a commodity, go on the web. And if you can find a $59 ticket on Southwest, let me know. But the point is, anytime you have any kind of an intricate or detailed itinerary and you need questions, you need answers. And that's not going to come on the web. And and that's where the travel agents have been stellar in the pandemic and beyond.
2: And you need an advocate if things go sideways. You need an advocate.
1: Absolutely. And you know what? There's something else. What they look on on their computer screen is different than what you see on yours. They have inventory there that you don't have because of their preferred supplier relationship. So if if, if, when you go online to Orbitz or Expedia or Travelocity and it says one ticket left, that's one (laughs) ticket left in their allotments. That's not one ticket left. Give me a break. (laughs) And the the other thing that really gets- I
2: do fall for that sometimes I know
1: you do. and, And I do too, but here's the thing. The most important thing to remember is that in the world of big data, when you go online to make a reservation, You've now told those people everything about you. And next thing you know, they know what you're interested in and they price it accordingly. So if you're going to research a fare online, be my guest. But if you want to go back online to buy it, either get rid of your cookies or use somebody else's computer. Because miraculously, guess what happens? The fare goes up because they know you're already interested. I'll give you the example. I booked a flight online. I was was going to do uh, CBS this morning. And I didn't know if I was going to go on a Wednesday or a Thursday, but I knew I needed to go. So I went online to research the fare and I found one for like, you know, 350 round trip from L.A. to New York. I said, well, I can't book it now. I got to find out what day they want me to come. And and they're going to i will know in a couple of hours. So when they told me what day I was coming, I went back online. It was 460. So I went to the airlines. I said, listen, I went online at two o'clock in the morning. Are you telling me that by five o'clock in the morning, 50,000 people suddenly wanted to be on that flight? They said, well, you know, the transcon is a very popular flight. People like it. It's the law of supply and demand. I said, you know what? I'll take your word for that. But what I did the next night, and we actually ended up doing this as a segment on CBS. The next night, I went online at 2 o'clock in the morning and looked at a fare from New York, LaGuardia to Des Moines, Iowa on a Wednesday, four months later at 11 o'clock in the morning at a time when nobody was going to Iowa. OK, and I got a fare of $228. I went back three hours later. It was 290. Now, no one could tell me that at five in the morning, there were 50,000 demented people just I mean, determined against all odds to go to Des Moines, Iowa three months later at 11 o'clock in the morning. It proved the point. So another reason to use a travel agent or an advisor. But if you want to go online to research and you still want to book the ticket, get rid of your cookies or use somebody else's computer when you go back on.
2: That's why you come here, ladies and gentlemen. That is a fantastic bit of insight about how this actually works and yes on any given hour in any given day in this country there are fifty thousand demented people they're just not all going to des moines uh peter i am not a cruise person we've got about three minutes left uh but millions of americans are cruise people they love it three minutes where's the cruise experience now and where is it heading
1: it's heading it's heading up uh in 2019 30 million americans took a cruise And a majority of them were repeat cruisers. They love their ships. They have an entitlement issue. They they love specific ships. They have an emotional attachment. And they're back. Uh, They couldn't wait to get back to cruising. Uh, For the entire 2022 season right now, almost all the ships are sold out. All right. Now, for the the trips that are happening this year, it's been a little rocky start because the CDC rules have kept changing. And of course, the state of Florida, the state of Texas, with their mask uh, requirements, and vaccination requirements now litigated in the court. But what's happening now, as we're speaking, there are cruises that are going from San Diego and Seattle to Alaska this summer. They're just not stopping in Canada. President President Biden signed the waiver on that old law, allowing that to happen. You've got cruises out of Florida where vaccinations are optional, which is a little absurd. But guess what? If you can't prove that you've been vaccinated, you're going to have to wear a mask for the entire cruise, and you're going to be denied activities. I get that. This will settle out either in the courts Or It will just settle out economically. But bottom line is, by the end of September, most of those cruises will be back on schedule. You're going to see fall and winter cruises. And of course, as I already said, by 2022, good luck getting a cabin because they're already selling out.
2: Will those cruise experiences look pretty much the same, or are there pandemic differences embedded in the new reality?
1: There are pandemic differences now in terms of shore excursions. A lot of cruises operate in a bubble, so you can't explore a port on your own. You have to go in an, an escorted, uh, very you know very uh, restricted cruise uh, shore excursion. Uh, but other than that, uh, it's it's actually working out quite well.
2: Uh, fewer buffets, I've heard.
1: Well, no, the bu- ah the buffets are actually back, but they're differently designed. So you show up at a a, a food station, you don't have a plate, you point to what you want, and there's a staffer there who's fully garbed and will plate it for you. The good news, at least in my case, Major, is that you're not going to be overloading your plate.
2: (laughs) That's right. No plate overloading allowed. And you get all the details on this show, ladies and gentlemen, to take out, including the new buffet rules on cruise lines across the globe. Peter Greenberg, it's been a delight. It always is. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Thanks for your knowledge. For our radio audience, we need to bid you farewell. For those on the podcast platform and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I am Major Garrett. We hope you have enjoyed thoroughly this travel excursion via Peter Greenberg and the Takeout. We'll see you next week.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Peter Greenberg, travel expert, is our guest. Peter, you're also, I've just been told, a volunteer firefighter. Where and why?
1: Well, I've been doing it since I'm 18. Uh, I do it actually in Long Island out on a place called Fire Island. I do it because when I was about 17 years old, the firefighters asked if I wanted to do it. I thought it was a good thing to do for the community, and I've done it ever since. What most people don't realize is 74% of all firefighters in America are volunteer. um, And uh, we get the same training as city departments. Most of my time is spent in class uh, doing recurrent training. Of course, I'm on duty three days a week, seven months a year. And I, I work my journalism schedule around that. Um, And uh, it also allows me to not because I designed it this way. It also allows me to be a better journalist because if I'm covering a situation where there's a fire or firefighters involved, uh, I'm allowed as uh, sort of a professional courtesy to, to get it, to get the inside story, if you will.
2: Exactly. Now, we could do, as you well know, Peter, an entire hour-long episode on what I'm about to talk to you about, but just give me a couple of minutes because you have this dual perspective. Climate change, fires, tourism.
1: Ooh, yeah, we have, we have a long time to talk about that, I hope. But the bottom line here is uh, we're seeing this across the country and in places we've never seen it before. I mean, look at look at the Pacific Northwest right. uh, in Oregon and the state of Washington, and where you have kindling that has been so ready to, to almost essentially explode, yep. and when you fight a fire like that, you cannot fight it offensively. You can only fight it defensively. It's a triage situation in which it's called surround and drown, in which you're just trying to save everything around what's on fire, but you can't save what is on fire, and the other thing that people don't realize until you're actually in the middle of it, and I have been in the middle of it, and I'm telling you, it's terrifying. Fires are moving at the rate of maybe two miles an hour. Now, think about that. It doesn't seem fast. That's fast. And how do you get ahead of that? And the answer is you don't. Uh, so everybody's being defensive right now, and uh, that, doesn't help thing, that doesn't help things out, especially when you have tourism destinations that depend on visitors, who in many cases, through uh, just ignorance – are part of the problem, causing the problem.
2: Indeed. I grew up in San Diego, California. Peter, as most people in this audience know, California is what I continue to believe is my home state. It no longer has a fire season. It has fire years, period. Correct. Correct. There is no season anymore. And it's hard for me to accept that reality and not accept the fact that warming contributes to that new reality.
1: Oh, it does. And- It it changes our training as firefighters. Uh, It it, it can't change our response time, but it does change our training. And uh, and sometimes you can't get ahead of it.
2: Right, and it does change that sense of alertness because it used to be, well, these months you can sort of put in the less dangerous category. They're all dangerous now. Um, Before I let you go, Peter, uh, we always ask our guests these three questions. We love the answers because they tell us a little bit about them. So in whatever order you prefer to answer them, most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to really dig some music, I mean, really, really get into it. You're on a long flight, long train ride, or a long bus ride. What kind of music artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
1: All right. Well, the answer to the first question is an easy one for me because I keep reading the book over and over again. Uh, It's a Somerset Maugham book called the writer's notebook and what it was He's a man who, uh, for those of you who know, he's an uh, amazing author, but he traveled the world. And this is a book where he just wrote notes, uh, little observances, uh, uh, observations of, of his experiences. Some of them are a paragraph long, some of them run for six or seven pages. And it's one of those books you can open up to any page and, uh, and be right in the middle of it. Um, and, uh, and interestingly enough, the observations he made over 100 years ago are still, still relevant today. Uh, the uh, the runner-up on that is a Mark Twain book that yes. nobody knows about called The Innocents Abroad.
2: I was just going to mention that book, as a matter of fact. I love that book.
1: Yeah, amazing. And it, and people don't remember that Samuel Clements w- traveled the world to places that nobody went to in the 1800s. I mean, he was in the Middle East and crazy stuff going down the Nile. And uh, I'll give you one little uh, fun part of that book. He was complaining about hotels that were nickel and diming him then, because they were charging him for a bar of soap and a candle uh, way before the mini bar. <laughs> so, so there was that. Okay. The, the movie, which I, I, I have to tell you, nobody has ever seen this movie. So I encourage you to watch it. It was the last of the Hemingway books that they adapted. It starred George C. Scott and Claire Bloom and Hart Bachner and, and, and David Hemmings an amazing cast uh, called Islands in the Stream. Mm-hmm. And I, and, 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 and what's beautiful about that book was about really you know Cuba and, and yes, but where was it filmed in Kauai so uh, check that out
2: very and good third, very good the
1: third answer to your question or the answer to your third question is uh, it's got to be Bonnie Raitt
2: excellent we've not it, had a Bonnie Raitt reference on this program in almost 5 years that's fantastic
1: and of course the song that, that was written by John Prime that she sings so yes. well Angel from Montgomery so Angel if, from Montgomery beautiful look-
2: beautiful song beautiful renditions totally different I I, I am partial to the John Prine, but I love the Bonnie Raitt version as well. One other book that's a travelogue experience, first book that I read as a child by my favorite American author, John Steinbeck, Travels with Charlie.
1: Of course. Of course. If you really want to go east to west, there you go.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Peter Greenberg, what a blast. Thanks so much for your time. Folks, always great to have you with us at The Takeout. See you next week.